Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Felipe Rojas Silva, a professor of archaeology at Brown University. His book, The Pasts of Roman Anatolia, Interpreters, Traces, Horizons, examines Roman period manipulations of bronze and Iron Age material remains in what is now Turkey. He has conducted archaeological fieldwork in Turkey and Jordan and is the co-director of the Petra Traces Archaeological Project and was the associate director of the Notion Archaeological Survey. We spoke about his career switch from architecture to archaeology, research in humans marveling at ancient ruins, and interest in sense memory using smell. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me today. I was really excited to have this conversation. It's a long time coming. I know I emailed you a while ago. So I want to get right into things and ask you a little bit about how you got into the ancient world. Like what drew you in? Because I find it such a unique story and there is no one right way. Um, was it like a general love of the ancient world? Was it a class that was like an Egyptian class? And you're like, I love Egypt or a classics course. I just love this. I, I was born in Colombia and I grew up in Colombia. I was originally trained as an architect. And when I was studying architecture, I began learning ancient languages uh, and I liked learning ancient languages a lot. And after I had finished my degree in architecture for various reasons, I, I wanted to leave Colombia and I applied to a grad school where there was somebody who was very interested in, 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 in Greek and Roman architecture and was partly interested in me because of my abilities to draw. And so I, after my first year of grad school, I, I went to Turkey as an architectural draftsman to work in the, in the city of Aphrodisias. And I think my love of ancient languages was coupled at that moment with my love for Turkey or, or going to Aphrodisias really made a, a huge impact on, on my life. I, I enjoyed being there a lot. I enjoyed the sort of work that I was doing there. It was very different from everything else I had done. I, I enjoyed the challenges of learning Turkish. So, so I think it was, it was those two things. I, I, I was interested in ancient languages and then going to Turkey sort of really focused my energies, if, if that's the right expression. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I love the background in architecture. It's something that's, uh, I mean, it's it's related, but it's still a little non-traditional. Um, and so I see that you do both Egyptology and Assyriology. So is it, like, I like don't, how I don't, do I don't, you... I, I, I don't do uh, either of those things. Um, so I have, I have 
two appointments at Brown because mm -hmm. of uh, sort of administrative reasons. Mm -hmm. I am mostly at the Tchaikovsky Institute for Archaeology. Ah, and okay. I am also, my, my, my other home base, as it were, is, uh, or is the Department of uh, Egyptology and Assyriology. And in that department, I mostly uh, in charge of things Hittite. So I'm not an Assyriologist, I'm not uh, uh, an Egyptologist, but I do know uh, about the Hittites. And so I, I, that's, that's sort of my commitment to that department is, is, is Hittite matters. Okay. Okay. Well, that shows how much you can learn from reading up on someone's website bio on uh, on university sites. So, so since that's obviously not super accurate on the website, then this is a great opportunity then to say, what would you categorize your specific interests and specific research in, and how did you curate that interest? Like, what led you to that specific work? I have, I mean, I have lots of over, overlapping interests that are even independent interests, but um, let me start with where, where I was just at. So with my interest in architecture, when I, when I first went to Turkey, I was interested, or, or rather I was, I was made to work on Roman monumental architecture. Uh, Aphrodisius is a very well-preserved city. There are many monuments that are in very good shape. And I worked for a while on domestic late antique residences. And by work, I mean, I, I drew them. And later on, I worked on, on an imperial temple or an imperial temple complex in Aphrodisias. And I, I initially just drew them. Eventually, I got to think about how those buildings were put together. Those questions about monumental architecture, I kept exploring in different uh, sites in Turkey. I worked also for many years uh, at Sardis in the city of Sardis. Uh, and there, again, I worked on, on, a, on a very big uh, temple, the Temple of Artemis at Sardis, and also in, in, in different parts of the city. That interest in, in, in drawing the sort of ancient material culture has, has continued, and I've, I've continued to do that in the field. And I think some of my Questions have have, I guess, expanded about and, and have and have now turned onto human landscape interaction in different parts of the ancient world. I now work also in Petra, Jordan, and I'm very interested in the agricultural, or let's say, the suburban terracing systems that control uh, water and earth around the city of Petra. So my interest in in the built environment has moved from monumental architecture two questions about human landscape interaction. While I was working, especially at Sardis, I, I was excavating in Sardis for, for almost a decade. And, and I became very interested in the fact that the periodizations with which we, we approach the ancient world are in some ways artificial impos impositions on the, well, on the world. And so I came across material objects that were out of place. And by this, I mean, in digging a Roman temple in Sardis, I came across a, a Bronze Age mace head, for example, that attracted my attention a lot. And I, and I, and I began to wonder, well, how does a, Roman, a, a person in Roman Sardis interact with a Bronze Age mace head? Uh, as I was traveling throughout Turkey, I became really interested in, in, in Hittite and, and later uh, rock reliefs carved in the cliffs and mountains uh, of Turkey. There are many of these things. And the same question sort of popped up. What does a Greek or Roman observer think about these ancient monuments that are highly conspicuous, that are, they're not ubiquitous, but there's, there's hundreds of these things. And so there's no doubt that people saw them. And I was interested in, in, in trying to figure out how an ancient observer made sense of this material. That question sort of was a central question for my dissertation and, and, and much of my work has centered on what you could call the archaeology of memory or the investigation of the past in the past. I have, I have different terms for it. I, I, I think that what we're seeing in, in some of those engagements of ancient interpreters with even more ancient evidence is what I call archaeophilia, which is a a human impulse to make history out of material objects. And, and that is a really 
central part of my academic work. And then I'm also interested in comparative ideas of history and comparative ideas of archaeology and comparative ideas of antiquarianism. And so I have sort of made, a, made an effort to, to engage in dialogue with people working on similar matters in other parts of the world, especially in the Americas and also in sort of Turkey and Armenia and sort of neighboring regions. So, so I'm interested in comparative antiquarian practice. That is something that I find fascinating, but I've never had the opportunity to really get into just with the way my studies and my schedule came out. I just didn't really get into it. So I think it's awesome that, so all this to say, I think it's awesome that you're really sort of taking on this, this amazing endeavor really that I don't think a lot of people would be very aware of or know that it is a discipline in which they could kind of go further. I would say the only thing close that I have heard of was uh, a good friend of mine is a Greek archaeologist and he loves roof tiles. He loves studying roof tiles and he loves studying where roof ancient Greek and Roman roof tiles end up because he would talk about, you know, i we find roof tiles everywhere. And he's like, well, how did this get here when it's, you know, not supposed, well, it, we wouldn't think it was here. So that's just sort of the, the bare bones of, of uh, how he explained it. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but it, it, it sounds really interesting and I'd love to learn more about it, but I want to just rewind really quickly to when you were younger and up and coming uh, as, a, as a person and as a scholar. So you said you were originally from Colombia. So was there any in emphasis placed on the sort of study of the cultural history from, you know, South America, from that region of the world and in, in your personal family life, school even. And um, did you always have a fascination with, I guess, the, the Mediterranean? Or did you ever think maybe you would want to go into the architecture and the archaeology of South America? So, so it's two different questions. One is about the history of South America and South America. And the other one is about my interest in the Mediterranean. It could be interpreted as, as two questions like that, but I guess it's, you know, when you grew up just with your, in your family, you know, was there an emphasis on, you know, studying the culture from where you have come? And I guess the two-parter would be then, yes, you know, did you ever want to study South American culture or were you always just, no, I, I know I would like to go to the Mediterranean. I, I understand the question. Um, so I, I, I mean, I can, I can answer kind of anecdotally about my own experience. Um, I think there, in, in the high school, in, in the school that I went to, and I went to the same school from when I was six to when I was 18, there was very little emphasis on any history. History was just not something that was very important. I think the, the sciences was much, were much more important and there was a huge, huge emphasis on that and then on literature, but there was really minimal minimal attempts at, at teaching any history. So I, I don't think that's very unusual in, in, in Colombia. I, I may be wrong and, and I'm sure there are other people whose experiences have much richer sort of uh, historical pedagogy. Mine was, was really terrible. I think there is minimal awareness among Colombians, including me, about the sort of archaeology and history, especially the pre-colonial history of the country. But there are a few sites that, that are known to everybody. I think it's not very different from, from, from what happens in the US, perhaps with a little bit more emphasis on the pre-Columbian cultures in Colombia, but not, but it's basically analogous to what happens in the US, that people aren't really very deeply educated in, in the in the pre-contact history of the of the of the land. I had no interest in particular in, in the Mediterranean. I mean, I, I had been there before I started studying classics, but I, I wasn't particularly interested. And I think had I learned different languages, I may have been interested in other parts of the world, but I, but I, I happened to learn Greek and Latin. And so I ended up, and I, and I went to Aphrodisus, and so I, I ended up there. But I, I think my fascination with the ancient world is pretty late. I mean, I think I was 
25 or something when I before I really said, well, okay, I can I can I can dedicate my life to 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 this part of the world. And 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 as I say, I think Turkey was really important. It made a, it made a huge impact on me to be there, to meet people, to learn the language, to live there. It it just opened my eyes to to things that I really value. Okay. Okay. So I, you just mentioned that uh, there was really no emphasis on the, on the teaching of, of history and especially archaeology with the focus being on science, which unfortunately is a, a trend I see us kind of going back to, especially uh, in the U.S., but, but also around the world where we're emphasizing STEM and we're defunding humanities programs left and right just because it's kind of prioritizing resources. And unfortunately, we're always on the chopping block. So because of that situation, because humanities and history aren't deemed sort of worthy enough of getting the funding, were did you or maybe your family ever have, you know, serious doubts about you choosing this subject as a career? I mean, were you, um, I mean, I know your early interest was in architecture, and that is d- different, obviously. But also, I would argue that a lot of parents of today would say, well, architecture really won't make you a lot of money either. So was there ever a push for you to get into some sort of STEM field so you could make, you know, like, I guess whatever people would assume would be like a lot of money and be more financially secure? Or were you quite supported in going into the the arts, really? I think my my family was was completely supportive and I and I received no pushback and and I think the same is true for for my siblings that people just did what they wanted to and 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 we'd sort of figure it out I think there was a little bit of pushback from the institutions themselves when I went to when I went to college I think people and I remember a conversation of I, I did very well on my standardized test and I remember somebody saying you can do better than this you should you should you should, should, you should actually become an engineer or something there's there's hope for you but I but I but I received very little I mean no pushback just basically support from my family and yeah well I would say that that's a great advantage at least to have the the family support because I unfortunately know too many people who butt heads with their parents who say, I want to do this. And they say, no, you are not allowed to do that. You have to go be an accountant and make money. So then you can come off our payroll or something very similar. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think part of the, 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 the issue, I, I, I finished college in the year 2000, which wasn't the best time to finish college in Colombia. And I think a lot of people in, in many fields, in many disciplines, especially in architecture, but in other disciplines as well, didn't have a very clear path forward. I think very few of my classmates who studied architecture became architects. And I think that's true in other disciplines. So, so I don't, I mean, it, it would be hard to, to give pushback because it's, it's not like there were that many jobs anyway. I, I think that helped maybe. It might have. I mean, you know, it's, you know, trying to trying to theorize and, and figure out, um, you know, might be a little hard, but I, I can imagine where it, it would be. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I so you so I'm trying to go back to where you you mentioned um, sort of doing the archaeology of memory in the senses, and I kind of just wanted to dive back into that. So do you mind elaborating a little further on kind of what you hope to um, explore within that, uh, just for people who didn't know or, or who do not know what on earth that means? Because I'm, I'm, I'm betting that most of my audience and myself included go, oh, that sounds really cool, but I don't really know what that means because how can you equate senses and, and, and things to something as, you know, as broad as archaeology? Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, I came in the wake of sort of seminal academic contributions to the topic. And I think around the turn of the millennium, maybe 2003, 2002, there were several books that, that really transformed the field and pushed the possibilities of exploring the seemingly intangible aspects of life like memory. Um, I'm thinking in particular of two books of Richard Bradley, The Past in Prehistoric Societies, and Sue Alcock's Archaeologies of the Greek Past. So both those books are really sort of game-changing. 
And what, what they did was to sort of demonstrate that you could study how people came together around things and in a way interacted and manipulated the past by, by using things and, 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 and just interacting with them. So what I was interested in was a little bit more specific, which was what did the, the classical, let's say, uh, civilizations, uh, so the Greeks and Romans think and do with, with Bronze Age material culture? And that is a big question because people often assume that there's a very big break between the Bronze Age and, and let's say the, the Iron Age a break that in Greece, for example, results in the, in the, in the forgetting of, of writing. So, so the linear writing systems of the Aegean are ceased to, to be used for, for centuries and, and, and writing sort of resurges as, as an alphabetic writing much later. And so I was interested in thinking, well, what did, what did Herodotus and his contemporaries think of the fortresses of the Hittites or what did the poets who, who, who wrote the Homeric epics think of uh, weapons that you would find when you dug, or um, as, I, as I said, what did just no, anybody, normal people, uh, think about those reliefs that are so conspicuous and that have writing and that have writing that is conspicuously writing, even if you can't read it when you see a cuneiform inscription, almost everybody would know, almost everybody has interacted with writing would think, well, that could be writing. And so my, my questions had to do with what did that stuff, that, that stuff that for us is from the Bronze and Iron Age mean to Greeks and Romans? And, uh, and so initially when I started working on this, my advisor, who, whom I, I, I love dearly, said, um, there's not enough stuff. This is really interesting. It's a, it's a really cool question, but, but you, you'll never find enough stuff to write a dissertation. And, and I think by the end of the dissertation, I had so much stuff that I, it was hard to write the dissertation because there was too much. And so I, I, I think that without those seminal books, I wouldn't have engaged in the, in the project. And then again, sort of support from the people around me made it possible to engage in a project that initially seemed tenuous and improbable and, and later on sort of just became a huge project. Okay, I thank you for clearing that up because now I have a better picture of what your actual, the heart of your inquiries were. And it is very helpful to, to imagine, okay, so we have, you know, yeah, we, we have Pericles, we have someone in the fifth century, we maybe have people in the fourth century looking back at these historical artifacts that we have and just saying, what on earth is this? And so as you were describing that, it got me thinking and it's, it's the funniest thing. I was trying to think of sort of modern examples and portrayals we have of ourselves. And what I mean, I guess, is just modern people portrayed in culture, looking back at our past and also wondering about things that are ancient. And I guess I, I love doing this sort of little media section where I say, you know, is there like a sort of a media portrayal, whether it's in a film or TV show that takes sort of this question of looking at the past and, and really wondering, you know, what did people do? How did this come here? What did this do? And, and like, you know, is there something that kind of we can look at and say, oh, that's, that's sort of um, portraying the, the question that you've had in your mind. So as you were describing kind of like, yeah, what would Herodotus think of, you know, the Cycladic, uh, you know, remnants from the Bronze Age, I was thinking, oh, it's, it's kind of like Planet of the Apes, right? Where we have people looking at the ruins of our civilization way in the future thinking, oh, who built these? Why are these here? And then, and then I, I pictured the very iconic Statue of Liberty buried in the sand and them just kind of coming across it going, oh, oh my goodness. So that's just one example, obviously. But, you know, no, are there a, I mean, other- It's a very good example. It's a very but are there other good example. ones that you have been able to sort of see or notice and, and say, oh, I really like this. Can we go deeper? 
I mean, from the top of my head, I can't, I, I can't think of one. I, I might, I might, something might pop up, but I, I think that's a very good example. It's, it's, I'm interested in people recognizing objects as man-made and then not, not only as man-made, but as old and man-made and then explaining how they got there. That's, that's sort of what I, what I'm interested in. And I don't know, often, often movies about extraterrestrials sometimes have this, this moment of, of arriving in a planet where there exists one or a different planet and seeing traces of a human or humanoid past. And then from the traces coming up with a story about how they got there and why they are the way they are. So, so I think it's a, it's a common trope. I think it's weirdly unusual or it was weirdly unusual until recently for people to think that about really sort of ancient people. So for people to think, well, the, the Greeks were engaged in this and the Assyrians were engaged in this and presumably people in the Neolithic were engaged in this and perhaps people in the Paleolithic were also engaged in this, that awareness that there is man-made stuff and that man-made stuff can be explained because you have different ways of, of interacting with that stuff and, and extrapolating historical evidence from it. Well, I think that even you just um, walking us through that again just popped another example into my mind. And now I have to ask, have you seen the, um, the alien sequel, Alien versus Predator? Have you seen that movie? I have not, but I know that it has uh, an interesting script. I know that I, I haven't. Go, tell me more. So I just it, so what you're describing from your interests got me thinking. I think you'd really enjoy it because we have in that particular movie a bunch of people who encounter this pyramid hidden way deep in like Antarctica, and there's actually a character who I I think he might actually have been like from Colombia. I don't I don't know if it's Colombia, but but there's a character from South America and he's an archaeologist and he looks at pyramids. And then there's this very specific scene that I'm I'm thinking of where he talks through our main character and says, "Oh yes, we've found this very strange pyramid that looks like it's modeled after pyramids from three different ancient civilizations. What is it doing in Antarctica? Oh my goodness. And he's like, and it predates the old ones. We need to go look at this. Uh, we need to figure out why. And then, you know, that's basically the premise of the movie, which is you have to go explore this old pyramid, which predates all the pyramids that we've found. And so, oh my gosh, that just like popped into yeah, my mind. And I'm like, that's good example. <laughs> Another good example. So I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, that's too bad. They sh they should have hired you for the for the movie for the role, <laughs> and and then you could have had some fun um, <laughs> pretending to to analyze an alien pyramid uh, that that holds a an, an alien from outer space and a and a predator in a spaceship. <laughs> um, but okay, so I have some other questions, some other questions that I would like to ask. And the first is, when you were a young student in college, did you? attend office hours? No, I mean, there weren't any, so I didn't. Okay. So second question would be if they had been offered slash from knowing what you do now as a professor, why should students go to office hours? I mean, I, I had a different sort of academic education and, and in some ways it was more informal and there's, much less prestige attached to being a college professor in Colombia, if you can imagine that, than, than there is in the US. And I think the relationships are in some ways, in some ways more informal. And so there's no need for office hours because you sort of have many opportunities to interact with, with your instructors and your professors. And, and I, I, I think the, the good thing is that you, you get to understand what motivates them I think quite well by just being around people and talking to them and having lunch with them and having coffee with them and, and so that's that's I think a, a, an advantage of understanding what it is that that makes people tick oh I love that and since the the emphasis is completely different would you mind elaborating a little on the differences sort of in in system because I think most American college students can't really imagine other things other than no don't you just go to class and then they have a time so you can go talk and sort of get 
extra help if they missed a class or they need a clarification. That's usually, I think, what we think of and what we're used to. So I know to a lot of Americans, the idea of sort of just sort of hanging out with professors is very foreign and weird. So um, yeah, just what was it like? Yeah. I mean, again, I think the social structures were slightly different. And so when I was in college, a lot of my time was spent in, in studio. And there were, there were these very long, there weren't classes, it was just time in a big room. But there was, it was a lot of time, it was six hours or eight hours when like that you had to be there. And then people kept there, I mean, stayed there for many more hours. And so I think just spending eight hours or 10 hours in the same sort of space with other people, you, you just have to interact almost, almost by necessity. And in my experience, these, these sort of more creative fields, um, there's a lot of collaboration. So, so if you're tired or if you didn't finish your plans and somebody would, would come help you. But and in my experience, at least, the teachers were often part of the, of the process. They, they really, or at least some of them, the ones that I gravitated towards, helped and and as you as you advance through your degree you ended up working for some of these people professionally and so I think the the boundaries were more porous that you sometimes were their employees sometimes you were their students sometimes you you were maybe not their friend but but they're I don't know they're they're close acquaintance let's say sure sure and what in terms of, I mean, okay, this this could turn into a very large question, and and it it may not have an answer, but I find your research very fascinating. I found the question fascinating, and what would be the next frontier, the next big thing you would like to see within the archaeology of of sense memory, and and you know, what is something that you feel would really propel us to the next step? So like, what's the next logical question uh, we would be asking and that would be of interest to research? Yeah, there are two projects that I'm engaged in right now that I think are exciting and that I hope other people find exciting. This effort of mine to understand how people engage with the past has led me to, to sort of try to find different ways of doing so, different ways of telling stories about the past. So I concentrated initially on monuments, on fortresses, on, on, on rock reliefs, on, on sort of buildings. But through that effort, I, I then started thinking, well, what about other forms of, of accessing the past? And, I, and I've written, for example, about smell as a, as a way of accessing the past. And so people will I mean, the, the classic example of, of sort of senses in the past is in Proust and, and his Matlent. But um, I wrote about people in Greek and Roman antiquity smelling events, specific events in the past. So smelling, for example, the fact that a centaur had died in a, in a specific place and, and the, the smell was recurrent and the smell could be accessed by either experts or just the general population and, and, and it would be attributed to the death of a centaur. This uh, interest in the archaeology of the senses, I think, intersects with people who have been doing this uh, longer than I have, including my colleague Yanis Hamilakis and other people around the Mediterranean. What's at stake, I think, is varieties of historical consciousness, varieties of, of, of human ways of thinking about the past, and not just thinking about the past, but, but accessing it and manipulating it and reinventing it. And so I'm, I'm now engaged in a project that concerns dance, ancient, ancient performance as a way of, of making history. And we know from both textual and evidence and, and actually material evidence that this happened. And this happens cross-culturally in other places that history is not just written or not just say monumentalized with marble. It's also, it can also be sort of relived in embodied fashion and relived in embodied fashion not simply as a sort of festival, but as, a, as an expert uh, manner of sophisticated engagement with specific past. And so uh, that's one of the things that I'm interested in doing right now is exploring dance as history in the Roman East 
And then the other thing that I'm really interested in is, you could call it sort of the transformations of, of, of classical traditions in, in different parts of the world. I'm particularly interested in central Mexico. And I'm interested in sort of the ways that, um, that Aztec or, or rather Nahua intellectuals and, and Nahua peoples both imagined their own past and then somehow had to fit it into Christian ideas of the past. Again, they're, they're all questions about historical consciousness, about communitive memory, and about how you find the past in things in different ways, um, either through smell or through dance, or just by looking at ruins in the way more or less that uh, archaeologists do now. Wow. Okay. So through smell, I, I that just sort of triggered something in me, which was... Um, so when it's just just say it for an example, I were to pick up a piece of jewelry that my grandmother wore um, and I were to smell it and I still smelled her perfume, you know, is do you consider that like a still way of almost accessing the past through sort of just being able to sort of smell the perfume and be like, oh, this is what she, you know, this is her perfume. This is what she smelled like. So then, you know, would that, if it triggered some sort of memory of remembering something she did or, or whatever, um, you know, it, is that something kind of what you're going for, but just more ancient than like me smelling my grandmother's perfume? So there, there are several things in the, in the example. I mean, you're smelling your grandmother's perfume is a way for you to access the past, but it's quite personal and it's quite limited. If I were to smell that piece of clothing or whatever, I almost certainly wouldn't be able to decode what you decode unless you sort of tell me. I'm interested in, in, in sort of collective versions of that. And I think in the Western tradition, which is kind of, an, I mean, I'm sort of brutally homogenizing here, but in sort of European history, smell hasn't been super important for uh, historical thinking, but there are communities in the world um, among whom smell is a much richer code of communicating information, including historical information. And so uh, your example is, is, is good at a personal level. And, and, and from there you could imagine, well, what if we all or a community of us agreed that smell is valuable because it encodes whatever the the smell of, a, of an important person then the other thing that is important here is that you i would i would i would dare to say are probably not an expert sort of smeller uh, but there are communities in which there are expert smellers and among us of course sommeliers or or chefs are are have a have sort of a uh a very sophisticated sense of smell. In the ancient world and, 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 and contemporary communities as well, there were similar experts. And so th there are sort of anecdotal and almost jocular um, pieces of evidence that suggest that there were connoisseurs who could smell the specific smell of Corinthian bronzes and could tell real Corinthian bronzes from fake Corinthian bronzes by smelling. I'm not sure that was the case, but that's the sort of thing that I'm interested. People with sort of advanced capabilities of smelling who other people recognize as experts. So communities of people who say, well, that person really knows how to smell the past. So I think those two things, one is a, a community-wide agreement and then these, these expert interpreters of smell. Okay, so so when you said community, so then I think my brain automatically jumped to, so in some cultures, maybe where not one person like my grandmother, but maybe like a um, a task or a job that was particularly important to the survival of the community as a whole. So now I'm thinking of, I think I saw like a 60 minutes documentary on um, like falconeering in Mongolia being essential to living and being able to survive in this hostile environment. So even like smelling a hawk, because that's what you use to go falconeering and that's how the culture survived. So was that more the community type of, you know, if everyone smelled a hawk and knew that this was how they got their food to survive, 
so they related it clearly to the cultural this is our like sport but also our survival is that more the community that yeah I, th- I think that's more the community i mean it, it, it's it's there are existing there are and there have been communities that have very rich ways of of experiencing smell sensations and of 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 sharing uh, sort of olfactory sensations including communities in colombia that have been well studied that have these vast, for example, vocabularies of, of smell, which we don't have. Our, our, our own vocabularies of smell are in some ways limited. It's hard to agree on what, what exactly is a smell or hard to think, if I tell you a smell, it may not be the same smell that I'm thinking about. Whereas um, there have been people who have, well, vocabularies, but as I say, sort of lived experiences that are much more sort of olfactory centered and and I'm I'm interested in part in, in how some of these people use smell to to produce history well I just find it fascinating and just even getting the time to ask and sort of really delve into this fascinating topic that I really didn't know was a thing in all honesty has been so wonderful and I wish that I could pick your brain about it for, you know, 10 more hours. But I do understand that we both have, you know, actual lives and can't spend 10 hours. So uh, the final thing uh, that I have my guests do on each podcast is I ask if each guest would read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. And then after reading it, if you could just give us your quick thoughts on, you know, what is the meaning of this poem? Like, why why is it important and, and what lessons might we take from this very impactful thing? And I, and I think hearing from you on, on it, considering your, your background and expertise on monumental architecture um, would lends very well to this question. Yeah. All right. Let me give it a try. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frowned and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. 
nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. What does this, what does this mean to me? Uh, this could be the, the epigraph of, of most of my academic work. I, I, have, I have tried to explore and explain and reflect about how people have looked at man-made things and at the changes they undergo and how people have tried to connect matter and time. And I have tried also to suggest and to show that archeology span is, is a very recent and academically authoritative expression of a human impulse that is very old, that is thousands and thousands of year, years old, which is the impulse to understand things that are recognized as man-made things, the impulse to, to try to make sense of matter that you know has been manipulated by man. That's what I think it means. Yeah, I love I love that. I I love it. And just considering the the fantastic discussion we were having about this, basically. um, Yeah, I it 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 hits differently, I think, today. I don't know. I I I read this all the time. So uh, I don't know if I'm like desensitized to it or no, I'm kidding. I love it. And it hits differently every time. But so one of the things that I often say is that Yes, it is talking about like a literal statue in the sand. It's talking about a um, forgotten civilization. But also, I believe that it is an incredibly uh, political statement by Shelley on the nature of the, the ephemeral nature of power, political power. It's kind of a memento mori, you know, hey, we're going to die, guys. And also just the fleeting nature of things that we thought were like amazing and great. And we thought we were, were going to last for all time. That's not really true. And so kind of in light of thinking about it that way, the last question I like to ask every guest is if we consider today's culture and society and just kind of where we're, where we are in life in the world, what is something in our current society that we think also is monumental and great and amazing that might last forever? And and whatever that may be, realistically, in a thousand years, well, okay, if climate change kills us all, let's that's that's being generous. So let's let's just say like two hundred years. But in two hundred years, will that current thing that we think is amazing and will last forever? actually still be around or will we look back at ourselves and just say what on earth were we thinking this was so stupid like just what were we doing I mean I think I think partly because of coronavirus but partly for more general reasons we're increasingly aware of the fragility of our own institutions and our own ways of being and I think I, I think the the most lasting traces of ourselves will be things that we're not thinking about all the time. So toothbrushes and garbage bags and toys and plastic and all that stuff that just lasts and lasts and lasts. Um, I, I think the, the the Shelley poem is 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 interesting and it's beautiful and. But it's very uh, Eurocentric in a way. These types of monuments, the big statues, the big fortresses, the, the reliefs on the mountains are, are peculiar forms of memory making. And other people have different forms of memory making that are, that are long lasting, but lasting in different ways. And, and our songs and our, and our poems and our ways of interacting with plants and with rivers and mountains that that are for us almost invisible but were not considered invisible and were considered long lasting and were considered to be not just the case but the case forever and yet there's almost no trace of that and for us who are 
slightly blind to these things, they're very hard to recognize in the world. Different forms of memory making are hard to recognize for us, but plastic will be remembered. Unfortunately, I think you're right, especially with the rate that plastic things are getting stuck in our oceans and we're finding them in weird spots and we're like, how did this get here? Oh my gosh, that's a little concerning. Um, I would definitely agree with you there. And I find it so interesting that you did bring up that it's taking a very Eurocentric point of view. I, I didn't think about that because Shelley himself is British. He's talking about the statue, which... Yes, it's based off of the statue of Ramesses, but the statue itself was being moved to like the British Museum and in the UK. I mean, we we see kind of the monuments that are left over there and how the Egyptians also favored monumental architecture. But it's very true. I hadn't thought about there are a lot of other cultures that their own ways would not be to just build a bunch of, of monuments, which is why also I think, unfortunately, today when we do observe cultures that maybe didn't leave such lasting um, structures or the remnants of lasting structures. Uh, We tend to think, oh, well, they didn't really have anything then because they don't have anything, but that's just not true. It's just in a different form. That is a take. I, wow. Just like, I've not heard anything close to that and I love it. And I love how it relates so well to the rest of our discussion. And again, oh my gosh, I don't, I think I've run out of wonderful things to say about it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I was so excited to speak to you. And I mean, I certainly have had a really good time because I feel like I learned a lot. So thank you, Lexi. I, I, I enjoyed this a lot too. Great. Thank you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is present ponderings. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 